This time I ask, uh, if you have a copy of Scripture, I ask you to turn to our sermon passage this morning, taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. You might be thinking, it's, it's Christmas morning. How, we're not reading from Luke chapter 2 or March or Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we'll see why. I, I want to, this morning, I want to remind us the reason why Jesus came into the world. And that is, by the title of our sermon, to be your prophet, priest, and king. And as you'll see, it's very appropriate for the, this Christmas service. So from Mark chapter 2, particularly verses 1 through 12, brothers and sisters, I ask that you give your careful attention for these are the very words of the living God. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when he saw, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise! take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. These are the very words of the living God. May he be pleased to write them upon our hearts. Well, it's been over three years since I heard about the church I currently serve as a pastoral intern. You, obviously, you guys don't know what prompted me to join that wonderful congregation. But while it's a long story, plus it's not why we're here, Rudy isn't the reason for the season. I will say this. It all started when I volunteered to help out at the 2019 youth camp our church puts on. It was at this camp that I had the wonderful opportunity to witness how bright my church's young people are. It was in seeing the youth of my church respond to complex theological questions that made me realize something, even as a seminary student at the time. Wherever these young people are getting taught, that's the church I want to intern at because I know that congregation takes God's word seriously. It was a sight to behold. And what was the subject of that youth camp? Jesus, your prophet, priest, and king. The title of this morning's sermon. And this is what we call the threefold office of Christ. Our faith centers around these profound truths because this is who Jesus is for you and me. This is the reason why he came into the world, left heaven's glories, took on our flesh to be our prophet, priest, 
and king. And by his threefold office, Jesus has secured our freedom from bondage to sin and has made us children of the living God. As we confess in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, verse 1, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world. And in our sermon passage, Mark's intention isn't only to remind you of something you might already know, but to bring comfort to your soul, give you hope, and once more praise God for who Jesus is on your behalf, causing your heart to rest in him. And in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, he intends to show us how this is the case. And hopefully by the end, you'll not only have a fresh perspective on this passage, but more importantly, like the paralytic and all those who were in this crammed house, a heart full of praise for Jesus Christ, your prophet, priest, and king. And if you notice, I did provide you with an outline. So if you want to follow along, a very simple outline. Uh, let's begin with our first point, which is Jesus is your prophet. In verse 1, Mark provides the setting where Jesus performed this miraculous healing. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. While we don't know if, if this house belonged to Jesus or to somebody else, the point is that Capernaum served the Lord Jesus as a base from where he recuperated from his many travels. As indicated in verse 1, a significant amount of time had passed since Jesus, since Jesus was last seen at home. What was he doing? Well, like all the prophets before him, all those prophets of the Old Testament, we learn that preaching and teaching were an essential aspect of Jesus's ministry. It's one of the reasons why he came into our sin-cursed world. And one of the reasons Jesus came as your prophet is so that he could proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. Jesus came to reveal the will of God to you. How do we know this? Well, if you have your Bibles, look back at chapter 1, verse 14. We see how Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God. Upon Jesus' first visit to Capernaum, we read in chapter 1, verse 21, how immediately on the Sabbath, he, was, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. In chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus tells his disciples why he left Capernaum in the first place. Let us go on into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And that's what Jesus did because in the following verse, verse 39, we read how he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. And it didn't end there because upon his return to Capernaum, we read in verse 2 of our sermon passage how Jesus was preaching the word to them. But what was this good news that Jesus continually preached that attracted so many? Well, Jesus tells us what that message was in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why is this good news? Well, due to your spiritual deadness, you need someone to show you how you can be saved. 
Left to yourself, not only wouldn't you know the severe danger you're in because of your sin, but you wouldn't even know that you need saving from sin. In fact, sin has had such a corrupting effect on humanity that he outright rejects that glorious message as pure nonsense. We need a prophet sent by God to show us how we can be saved from our misery. Someone who will preach the good news of God's kingdom. But beloved, the good news is that you have such a prophet. In fact, you have the prophet prophesied about in the Old Testament. Where? In Deuteronomy 18 verse 9. God told his people there in that wonderful chapter this. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. As God's mouthpiece, Jesus came to preach God's message of repentance and forgiveness. As your prophet, this is Jesus' message to you. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 24 says, Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. This is the good news of God's kingdom. We see throughout the entire Old Testament how the prophets were God's mouthpieces. God commanded them to call out his people for their sins. The prophets continually warned Israel to turn away from their wickedness before God's wrath came upon them. But the prophets also proclaimed the forgiveness of sins to God's people, even amid their rebellion. And in our passage, it's this word, the good news, the gospel of God's kingdom that Jesus declared to those crammed inside this house so much so, as verse 2 indicates, there was no more room, not even at the door. It's this word that the paralytic and his four friends heard and received by faith. And beloved, it is this same word that the Lord wants you to receive. It's because Jesus is your prophet, as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 states. Listen to this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the days we're living in, he has spoken to us by his son. This is what God commanded Jesus, your prophet, to declare to you repentance and the forgiveness of all your sins. This is the good news of God's kingdom that Jesus says to you even now. But you might be thinking, those are just words. These are just words I'm reading on the page. How can I be sure that Jesus is my prophet and he's telling me the truth? Well, the Israelites asked a similar question. Once again, in Deuteronomy 18, God says, And if you say in your heart, if you notice this is what the scribes are doing in our passage, they were saying something in their heart. How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in my name, in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. What does this mean? Well, when God 
wanted to authenticate a direct message to his people, he often worked by empowering his prophets to perform miracles. And so Jesus is your prophet because he doesn't just proclaim the good news of God's kingdom, but he also authenticates the gospel by performing miracles. And this is the very thing we see Jesus doing as he preached the gospel. Where? Looking back at chapter 1, verses 25 through 26, we read how Jesus healed a man with an unclean spirit. In verse 31, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of a deadly fever. In verse 34, we read how Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. In verses 40 to 42, Jesus heals and cleanses a leper. And in our passage, this is why Jesus healed the paralytic. After declaring his sins forgiven, recall, which is the message of God's kingdom, we hear Jesus say this to prove that his preaching was valid, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Over and over, we see how with the preaching of the gospel, Jesus authenticated it by performing miracles. Jesus' miracles and the apostles and all those written in scripture were recorded as a testimony for you to believe that he's your prophet and that he's, the message he's proclaiming is in fact true. But Jesus isn't just your prophet. We also learn another vital truth about our dear Savior, and that is he's also your priest. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus is your priest. As we saw in verse 2, many had gathered to hear Jesus preach and be healed by him. The need was so great that the crowd pressed around the door as if Jesus were a famous person. And he was famous. So much so that we read in chapter 1, verse 45, the passage right before our sermon text, we read this in chapter 1, verse 45, how people were coming to him from every quarter. Now consider that phrase with me for a moment. People were coming from, to him from every quarter. Why? Well, in ancient Israel, there was only one place where God gathered his people from every quarter to assemble. That place was the temple in Jerusalem, where sacrifices for sin were offered and rituals for cleansing were performed by the priests. As we'll see in a moment, this is why the scribes were furious with Jesus because he dared pronounce this unclean paralytic forgiven. Only the priests on behalf of God could declare anyone forgiven. If this is what the paralytic needed, he had to go to the temple in Jerusalem, not to this wandering preacher. But he couldn't enter the temple. Why? He was considered unclean due to his physical condition. The Mosaic law prohibited anyone with physical deformities from entering a sacred place like the temple on pain of death. Also, how is a paralytic supposed to get there? He has paralysis. Do you think someone's going to want to carry him 
some 80 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem? And so, where was this paralytic to find cleansing and forgiveness? There's no temple in sight. Since that's the case, why did all these people from every quarter come to Jesus in Capernaum of all places and not the temple in Jerusalem? But you see, beloved, Jesus isn't just a wandering preacher. He's your priest. And more than that, and I know this may sound odd, but Jesus is also your temple. And we learn that Jesus is your temple, is your priest because he's your temple. Why? Because where there's a priest, there's a temple. The two concepts are inseparable. How do we know this? Well, keep in mind the original recipients of this gospel, Mark's gospel. Mark had written to Christians in Rome who didn't live anywhere near Jerusalem. And if you believed in Israel's God, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether Jew or Gentile, you were obligated to appear before him three times a year at Jerusalem. Can you imagine the airfare on that? Man. Similarly, the Jew, the synagogue, was also essential to a Jew's religious life. Although the synagogue wasn't the temple's replacement, the Jews built them based on the temple, the same format, and facing Jerusalem where God's presence resided. So in a way, the synagogue did serve as a temporary temple away from the temple for God's people to gather and worship him. But why is any of this important? Well, look again at verse 2 where we read how many were gathered together. Mark is being a punster because the phrase he uses to describe this gathering is where the word synagogue originates. Furthermore, this word is passive, meaning that these people suffering from all sorts of sicknesses and infirmities aren't gathering themselves. Someone else is gathering them, beckoning them to come, similar to how God gathered Israel from every quarter to offer sacrifices at the temple. And we know these gifts pointed to Jesus' person and work because the Old Testament saints were saved by faith alone in what they symbolized Christ's sacrifice. And this is why we read in verse 3 of our text, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now the word to bring, if you look at its Old Testament usage, often refers to gifts that were brought to the temple as offerings to the priests or the altar. And we read about this numerous times throughout the Old Testament. In other words, similar to how the Jews gave their offerings to the priests at the temple, these four men attempted to present the paralytic, an unclean person, as a gift to Jesus. But while trying to to bring the paralytic to Jesus, it was all in vain. How so? Well, we read in verse 4 how they could not get near him because of the crowd. But that didn't stop him. That didn't stop them, I should say. For the kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Instead, these men climbed on the house and removed the roof above him. 
ladies, I'm pretty sure you would not appreciate that, right? <laughs> but that's what they did. And we'll return to this verse, verse 4, as Mark is again being a punster. But for now, notice how they removed the roof. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And Mark intentionally uses it to drive home a point. How? Well, the word, this word, they removed the roof. It's actually one word. This word describes how pagans would remove the roof of their temples to, to I mean, to remove the roof of their temples, which, remember, Mark's Roman audience most likely witnessed this practice. Mark is telling you, Jesus is your priest who's present with you because where there's a temple, there's a priest. Like these Roman Christians, you no longer need to go to Israel to worship God. Like this house, even I'm here. Mark's point is where Jesus is. There is a temple where cleansing is performed, gifts are presented, and sins are forgiven. As Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22 states, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. That's the same terminology used for the temple. As a dwelling, dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is our temple. But not only that, as your priest, we also learn that Jesus makes you acceptable to God. How do we know this? After these four men removed the roof and laid the paralytic before Jesus, we read in verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. In the Old Testament, we read how God commanded Israel to offer sacrifices to him. In and of themselves, these sacrifices didn't forgive anyone. They wouldn't need to continually bring them if they did. Instead, as mentioned earlier, the Jews were saved by placing their faith in what these sacrifices represented, namely the coming Messiah's sacrificial death on their behalf. In other words, Faith alone is how the Jews were justified and thus saved. And this is what Jesus saw. These men, along with the paralytic, realized who was standing before them, the substance of what those shadowy sacrifices represented. They knew Christ came to execute the office of a priest on their behalf, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism Question 25 says, Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Like the Old Testament saints, these men believed in what Jesus came to do. As Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 describes, Now Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And so, because of his faith in what he came to do, Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to draw your attention for a moment to who Jesus is declaring this to. A paralytic. This is someone 
brothers and sisters, with no hope, whose society considered worthless, a waste of space, and accursed. As I mentioned earlier, due to his paralysis, this man wasn't even allowed near the temple. The text doesn't even mention his name. He's only known by what he is. A nameless, unclean, accursed, paralytic, nobody. But not to Jesus. Not to Jesus. Beloved, consider the Lord's tender kindness with me for a moment. Here we have a man rejected and despised by society because of his physical condition. I point this out because some of you have loved ones suffering from extreme infirmities. Maybe yourself. Yet Christ didn't reject this paralytic. And can I tell you something? Nor does he reject you or your loved one because of their infirmity. You're the people God has chose to gather to himself despite your condition. How? Well, by declaring the paralytic sins forgiven, Jesus also claims that he's one of his people. Why? Because only God's people are forgiven. Notice what Jesus calls him. Son. Jesus' language communicates tenderness and acceptance. In fact, it's one that's full of joy. You can actually translate this phrase as, Oh, child! In other words, this paralytic is precious to Jesus. This is who Jesus makes acceptable to God. People suffering from various infirmities who can do nothing for themselves. These are the people Jesus has gathered to himself like he's done with you and me. These are the people your priest came to declare their sins forgiven. People like you and me who suffer day in and day out from various mental, spiritual, and physical difficulties. He does not cast you out because of them. Beloved, you do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with you or your loved one's weaknesses. I've witnessed this firsthand. As a matter of fact, I almost received a call at a, at a PCA church out in uh, Illinois. And the, they had a pastor there um, who was filling in as an interim, um, who uh, just incredible things I, I saw. Just, I was watching online. But allow me to read to you some of the remarks from a sermon this, this interim pastor recently preached. His name is Pastor Jim Claycomb. And he preaches from a wheelchair because he suffers from severe ASL, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. I must surely be considered in heaven as a poster child of this because I have all kinds of organic issues, and I'm sitting in these accordingly. I also have all kinds of non-organic issues. Try my diagnosis on for size, and I tell you that all I need there is Christ, who has surprised me. I thank him where I found him through my ASL. Oh no, Christ found me in my ASL. He found and accepted the paralytic 
despite his paralysis. He has undoubtedly found you despite your trials and infirmities. And by his one sacrifice, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But Jesus isn't just your prophet and priest. We learn another vital aspect of his threefold office. He's also your king. Bringing us to our third point. Jesus is your king. And if you notice, these are the reason, this is the reason why we're singing these hymns. Prophet, priest, and king. We're going to sing about the priesthood after this sermon. But by worse, and one of the ways we know Jesus is our, your king is because he has all authority to forgive sins. Upon hearing Jesus' authoritative declaration, we read in verses 6 through 7, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In Mark's gospel, this is the first confrontation between Jesus and these Old Testament experts, who questioned by what authority Jesus had the audacity to declare such things. They even charged him with blasphemy, a severe offense that required the death penalty, according to the Mosaic law. And if you're struggling with the shirts, I want you to zero in on that first question that these scribes post. The scribes ask, why does this man speak like that? I wonder if you can relate to that question to some extent. Beloved, you may not be questioning Jesus' authority to the point of charging him with blasphemy as these scribes did, but even now you may be asking yourself those questions because you're so weighed down by your sin. And it's and that's what these questions are supposed to make us ponder. Even as we read this scripture, even as we've sang this song about confessing our sin, even as we heard the assurance of pardon from Psalm 103, how the Lord forgives all your iniquities, even after reading how the paralytic, how Jesus forgave the paralytic, you can't believe it. You might be saying, oh yes, God does forgive sin, but he can't possibly forgive mine. Why does this man speak like that? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know the terrible things I've done? Doesn't he know how ashamed I am of myself? I can't possibly be forgiven. I am too far gone. This sin is way too much. But dearest believer, can I ask you a question? In fact, I'm not asking. Your loving king is asking you. And what question might that be? Look at the end of verse 8. Why do you question these things in your heart? Why do you question these things in your heart? Is it Jesus for saying, don't you realize who I am? What I've come to do for you? This is the reason why I was born. I know the terrible things you've done, and they're all forgiven. Beloved, your king isn't lying to you when he's saying that your sins are all 
forgiven as your king, Jesus can and is willing to forgive you all your sins because he accomplished it when he laid down his life on the cross for you. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses chapter 1 verses 14, yes, 14 says, the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. And what might that be? The thing, the reason why we celebrate Christmas, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're a sinner here this morning, you qualify for this salvation. Do not doubt. Do not doubt, brother and sister. But before that occurred, Jesus proved that he had the authority to forgive you. How? Well, as we saw earlier, Jesus performed miracles to authenticate the gospel message. And while knowing that the scribes inwardly questioned his authority, Jesus challenged their preconceived notion, their preconceived notions, by posing a question of his own to them. In verse 9, Jesus asks, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now we know, none of us, you and I, can perform either of these things that Jesus asks. In and of ourselves, we have zero authority to forgive anyone's sins. Because we're sinners. And we also can't miraculously command anyone to be healed. If that were the case, we would be doing so. There is a purpose behind Jesus' question because he intends to prove his kingship by exercising authority in performing these impossible acts. And he tells us that very reason. Jesus says in verses 10 through 11, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And because Jesus is king, he has all authority. Who has all authority? The act spoken came to pass. We read in verse 12, And he rose, the paralytic, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. But there's another reason why Jesus is your king. And ironically, the scribes tell us why. In verse 7, they ask, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here we learn that Jesus is your king because he's also your God. What further proof is there that this is the case? Well, first the scribes were correct when they said, um, in what they said, which is why they accused Jesus of blasphemy. For a man to bestow such authority upon himself, belonging to God alone, is blasphemous. Imagine if I just got up here and I said, by my authority, I forgive your sins. That's blasphemy. For example, John, right, excuse me, for example, God says in Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Only God can forgive sins because he's the fountain of all mercy and grace. 
In Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, God reveals himself to his people and to us as a as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And here's the here's the key. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is. But this king of ours is just is no mere man. Jesus is God, whose kingly robe even fills this temple at the moment. How? Well, recall how I said that we would return to verse 4, where the men removed the roof of this house. This word describes more than just an act of removing a simple roof. As I mentioned earlier, Marx intentionally uses this word to make a point, and it's to reveal Jesus's identity. Because not only where there's a priest, there's a temple, but also where there's a temple, there's a God. Remember Mark's Roman audience? They don't live anywhere near Jerusalem where God's presence resided at the temple. However, this word describes the removal of a temple's roof to reveal the God inside. With this in mind, notice in verse 4 where these men removed the roof. They removed the roof above him. As your king, Jesus is your God who is with you even now because the king of kings resides where there is a temple. And as your king, Jesus protects you, his people, as his treasured possession. And as we conclude, in these 12 verses, Mark describes our Lord's threefold office, the reason why he became incarnate. The reason why we say Merry Christmas. As your prophet gathers his people through the gospel proclamation, dear dear Christian, Jesus has revealed God's will concerning your salvation and has confirmed it by performing miracles like the healing of this paralytic, our dear brother. As your priest, Jesus gathers you into his body, which is his temple. He fully accepts you because he has offered himself on the cross for all your sins, thereby pronouncing you clean. And as your king, Jesus gathers and protects you, his people, by subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Westminster Shorter Catechism. So what should our response be to such a glorious and gracious God? Well, the same as those in verse 12, who saw the healing of the paralytic. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And that is true. They never saw anything like this because sacrifices all pointed to Jesus. This is the first time this has ever happened. Or as Psalm 103, the assurance of pardon, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. 
Doesn't this verse perfectly summarize our passage? Beloved, a day is coming when all your infirmities will be a distant memory. As a matter of fact, I don't even think we'll remember them. And on that day, you'll no longer ask, why does this man speak like that? Why? Because of what your prophet, priest, and king became incarnate to declare to you. May all glory, honor, and praise be to our God, who is sufficient even for you, even in your week. Amen. We bow our hearts in prayer with you. Our merciful God, who is pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word, grant us all that the grace that we may be not merely hearers of your word, but doers also. Give us the grace to, uh, of your Holy Spirit so that we may believe what has been proclaimed. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do as you conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. All this, gracious Father, we ask in his name. Amen.